the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Perhaps the most over-the-top statement that was made yesterday did not come from a member of Congress. And that's really saying something when you have competition like Cory Bush from Missouri, who's a newly minted member of the squad, when you have No Justice, No Peace, Maxine Water. When you have this guy, Adriano Espala from New York, saying that Trump summoned and dispatched mobs to assassinate Pence, Pelosi, and members of Congress. That's what he said. So it's really something to be more over the top than those individuals. Well, here's Jake Tapper commenting on Brian Mast. He's a retired Army Ranger and a Republican congressman from Florida. He's a W amputee because he stepped on an IED while serving our country. And Brian Mast asked the question during his comments, has anybody asked the question of those who rioted, did you do this because of what President Trump said? You know, if it was incitement to riot, and that's the article of impeachment, it would be interesting to present some witnesses as evidence to suggest that, yes, if President Trump's words were the basis of why I breached the Capitol or why I engaged in an act of violence and so on and so forth. That's what triggered me. And this is what Jake Tapper over at CNN said. That's relevant. What you're saying right now is relevant because Congressman Brian Mast, Mm -hmm. a Republican from Florida who lost his legs, by the way, fighting for democracy abroad, Mm -hmm. although I don't know about his commitment to it here in the United States. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by John Nolte, editor-at-large, Breitbart, Breitbart.com. Easy for me to say. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Good to talk to you guys again. What about that? Uh, If you uh, ask impudent questions in the assessment of Jake Tapper, then your uh, service record notwithstanding, you're just not interested in uh, defending democracy at home. This is something we've been seeing for the entire Trump era especially from Jay Tapper specifically, where it's just a rerun of McCarthyism. If you don't agree with me, you're not a good American. You're a traitor, and you need to be gotten rid of. So it's just par for the course. And Tapper's always writing the story where he's the hero. And this is just another example of that. It's just grotesque. But if you look at the polls, no one's paying attention to this. People still side with Trump. His approval rating's still in the high 40s. It's just more kabuki theater And in this case, it's kabuki theater that's turned impeachment into a partisan weapon as opposed to something extremely important. Because in the case of Trump, he's twice been impeached when the transcript of what he said is hidden because the transcript of what he said exonerates him. And he's twice been impeached for things the Democrats have done. The first thing he was impeached for was falsely was foreign interference in an election, which is something the Democrats are guilty of. The second thing he was impeached for was falsely promoting violence, and that's something the Democrats have been guilty of going back the last four years, especially the last year. 
is they called for riots and these violent protests all around the country. What do you think the play for Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell is? McCarthy and his remarks during the uh, debate yesterday saying that Trump has to you know, accept his responsibility for what happened on January 6th, and he is responsible. And Mitch McConnell playing coy about whether or not he would vote to convict if the Senate convenes a trial, if the Senate can't even convene a trial, which is sort of an open constitutional question. It, it seems to me, get your reaction, that this is all an effort to sort of cordon off Trump and basically tell him, you have to operate within our parameters post-presidency, and what they potentially have to hold over him is the prospect of a Senate trial. We'll make this go away, but uh, you have to be quiet or you have to sort of communicate in a way that we believe is constructive to our electoral interests in 2022 and beyond. Yeah, that's the impression I get as well. And I don't think Trump is responsible for this. He has every legal right and every moral right to contest the election. I don't know if the election was rigged to the point that it cost him the election. But I know that there was a ton of hinky stuff going on and that it deserves to be investigated. And now it won't be. And that was, that's part of the reason the media, and the Democrats are overblowing this the way they are, is to stop the investigations. And, and he told that crowd specifically to be peaceful and respectful. And faster than any Democrat or media person in history, he came out and told them to stop. So he's not at all responsible for this. But, yes, I think they're going to blackmail him. But knowing Trump, I don't think he's going to stand for it. Do you think he should attend the inauguration? Yes, I definitely think he should. I think at this point it's over. And we all know Nixon got robbed when John Kennedy stole the election in 1960. That's pretty well been proven now. And Nixon put himself above the country. And listen, I wrote Trump off back in April when he was giving those terrible press conferences during the coronavirus. I just cut him off at that point, just done with the guy. So when I defend him, I'm not defending him because, you know, I still believe in him. But I do think it's wrong for him not to attend the inauguration. There does come a point where you need to put where it's over and you just need to be bigger than than your own frustration. And he has every right to be frustrated over the election. But I do wish he'd attend and maybe a reason for him to attend, you know, you have to sort of appeal to Trump at his level. Uh, Mr. President, you know, if you attend, you're going to drive them crazy with your presence. So just attend and be gracious. That'll drive them more nuts than you not attending. And I've been saying that for years, that the best way that Trump could have driven his enemies crazy was to act like a normal president, was to be gracious and polite and still push the policies through that he wanted to push through. And if he had just done that, if he had just grown into the job, the world would look very different today. I, I was having this discussion with Heather McDonald yesterday. You know, I wonder if some of what the never Trumpers had to say and conservatives have always believed is correct, not to the extent and not to the way that they engaged some of them, but that character is destiny. And ultimately here at the end, you know, Trump's character flaws, in addition to some of the characters that he surrounded himself with, got the best of him. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's any question about that. Trump could be Trump as long as everything was going well. But once the virus hit, it just amazed me that he couldn't grow into the job and that he could have been remembered, especially with this Operation Warp Speed, as just the hero of the coronavirus. And he just stepped all over himself. And, of course, the media tried to trip him up. But I saw them do the same thing to George W. Bush. And he still managed to win re-election. And he managed a re-election when Iraq was going to hell. And that's because Bush remained steady. He remained presidential. And that's all Trump had to do. But he just, he just couldn't do it. And it's one thing to be, you know, the Twitter guy, you know, poop talking on Twitter when unemployment's at record low and the economy's booming and the stock market's booming. 
But it's another thing when people are dying, when they're filling refrigerators full of corpses in New York. He just he just couldn't do it. And that's why I wrote him off in April. I knew it was over then. And I said so. I'm on record. Almost everything he did policy-wise was not only the right thing to do when it came to the virus. In some cases, it was brilliant, like Operation Warp Speed. But it was yes, it was his personality, his pettiness. He couldn't let go of grudges. He let the media bait him. Those unending press conferences. It was just the worst. And I said so at the time. I said he's done now. And I think I told that to you guys, and that's exactly what happened. So um, the Republican Party uh, has a, a bit of a, a needle to thread, don't they? So on the one hand, you need to appeal to all of those uh, new Republican voters who came out for Trump and frankly helped uh, Kevin McCarthy pick up seats in the House. At the same time, you sort of need and, and, and you need to figure out what your policy vision is that incorporates some of what Trump did and what was popular that he did, including just the other day him standing at the 450th mile of wall being completed. Um, but you have to find better ambassadors for that policy vision than Trump without having Trump become somebody that's uh, seeking to undermine the party publicly. That's a real trick. Yeah, I, I think the party is in, in real trouble now. And because Trump's following is massive and it's loyal and we can't stand people like Mitch McConnell, you know, we can't stand people, the Paul Ryan wing of the party and Liz Cheney. And it isn't because they, of the things they do about Trump. It's just because of who they are. I mean, Mitch McConnell, I think, cost us the Senate because he was against those $2,000 checks, which is just the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I mean, even the most uh, uh, conservative economists tell you that if you give money directly to the people, that's a good thing. You don't empower bureaucracies. You don't empower the government. You give the money to the people. And that was just a disastrous mistake. The people he chose uh, to, to uh, stand in when Senate seats were, you know, like Kelly Loeffler, those were his picks, and they were terrible choices. Yeah. And and then you have Liz Cheney, who just wants war forever. You know, the, the party is in real trouble because Trump's going to hold on to his base. He has no intention of letting go of his power hold. And I just think 2022 is going to be very interesting um, if the Trump voters say, hey, screw you guys. You're going down. John Nolte, editor-at-large, Breitbart, Breitbart.com. John, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Take care. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. A number of Republicans during the impeachment debate yesterday made the point, House Republicans, that uh, President Trump explicitly stated in his speech to rally goers on January 6th, we have come to demand that Congress do the right thing and only count the electors who have been lawfully slated. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard uh, in suggesting that the incitement to riot 
is a difficult claim to make based on the actual words the president used. In addition to that, while they were debating the words the president used on January 6th, he offered more about violence, video that he released for national consumption during the impeachment debate yesterday. As I have said, the incursion of the U.S. Capitol struck at the very heart of our republic. It angered and appalled millions of Americans across the political spectrum. I want to be very clear. I unequivocally condemn the violence that we saw last week. Violence and vandalism have absolutely no place in our country and no place in our movement. And he went on to talk prospectively about violence per reporting and a Secret Service briefing that he got about planned protests in advance of the January 20th inauguration of Joe Biden. Those who engaged in the attacks last week will be brought to justice. Now I am asking everyone who has ever believed in our agenda to be thinking of ways to ease tensions, calm tempers, and help to promote peace in our country. There has been reporting that additional demonstrations are being planned in the coming days, both here in Washington and across the country. I have been briefed by the U.S. Secret Service on the potential threats. Every American deserves to have their voice heard in a respectful and peaceful way. That is your First Amendment right. But I cannot emphasize that there must be no violence, no law-breaking, and no vandalism of any kind. That's pretty clear. Uh, What is unclear is exactly uh, what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, And that's unclear in part because the FBI is still investigating. And uh, as apparently new information has become available, they're changing their tune a little bit, according to reporting, including from CNN, by the way, suggesting that uh, there may have been advanced planning and coordination uh, that was part of the violence and the rioting that ensued. For more on that, we're pleased to be joined by Frank Figliuzzi. He is a former head of FBI counterintelligence, author of The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. Frank, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. I'm, I'm glad we can squeeze this in and, uh, and talk about not only the book, but its application to what's happening in our country right now. Well, let's talk about its application here. Uh, the FBI investigation into January 6th, in addition to the preparation for January 20th in D.C. and elsewhere, you know, give us your assessment of, uh, in terms of where we're at and what we know and the questions we still are, are asking uh, in order to uh, find the people who were uh, the, the people responsible for the violence that was committed. Yeah, we've got more questions than answers, don't we, uh, this morning? And, and the answers are going to come slowly, but I don't think they're going to be pretty. Um, what we know so far on kind of the good news side is that the FBI has now acknowledged that they did provide intelligence about violence concerns to the Capitol Police, to the Washington Metropolitan Police, in fact, to the entire law enforcement of the Capitol region. So did NYPD intelligence unit, by the way. So that's kind of the good news. We also hear that the FBI actually now says they disrupted the travel of well over a dozen leaders that were going to organize and commit the worst violence they were all already under investigation by the FBI. And my sources tell me the Capitol incident could have been even worse, if you can imagine that. But here's the bad news. The bad news is obvious. We've had a security failure, not an intelligence failure. The intelligence was available. You and I could have sat back at home and watched it play out on social media for about two weeks. But the, the Capitol Police did not have sufficient resources. That was a deliberate decision. I want to know 
Who made that call? How high up did it go? How come there are 15 Capitol Police officers under suspension or investigation right now? What has happened? What's the current threat? What's the role of Congress members allegedly giving tours in the days before the insurrection to the very people who might have organized it? This country is under threat right now and hasn't faced this kind of security threat since 9-11. Well, uh, parallel to what happened uh, on January 6th, the Capitol has been rioting that is continues to occur in places like Portland at the hands of Antifa, also Manhattan, also San Diego. Um, uh, and there's some suggestion by those on the ground on January 6th that there were agent provocateurs there as well, instigators of some of the violence that were not, uh, you know, rank and file Trump supporters. Um, how is the FBI or, or w- would the FBI parse through all of that to figure out what happened on January 6th at the Capitol, but then also to make preparations for uh, the violence that uh, we saw throughout the country over the summer last year and, and at the hands of Antifa is still ongoing? So my FBI sources tell me that they are facing an unprecedented, daunting challenge. As you said, is it possible that a handful of non-Trump Supporters, a a handful of people who identify with Antifa or BLM might have been there along for the ride or instigating. I can't rule anything out right now. We are upside down in this country. I can tell you this. The challenge for law enforcement, the challenge for an agency like the FBI is to make sense of all this while under pressure of time deadlines. So they're going through facial recognition. They're looking at videos. They're looking at geolocation of your cell phone. They don't really care. I, this is the message of the book, by the way. It's an attempt to remind people the FBI rank and file is not politicized. They don't care. They don't look at who's a Democrat or a Republican or Antifa or, or Boogaloo Boys or QAnon. If you're a bad actor, you're going to be in handcuffs. That's what they're looking at right now. But the social media aspect of this is an avalanche of leads and tips. And, and they've got to get this done by the inauguration. They've got to get it done right now. Some of the reporting was that you were talking about federal law enforcement and administration agencies like uh, Homeland Security providing intel and and providing and offering uh, support for Capitol Police in preparation of January 6th. And and the reporting was Capitol Police were reluctant, uh, even rebuffed some of those advances because of concerns about the optics. They didn't want to be perceived as being heavy handed. They didn't want to be perceived as. Uh, the way that uh, federal law enforcement was t- treated when they descended on Portland after they tried to burn out a federal courthouse there. What, what is that? If, if that's true, and it seems plausible, um, what does that say about sort of the culture within law enforcement agencies, too, that needs to be challenged? You, you can't worry about optics. You need to worry about public safety. Well, you've raised an interesting point about what brought what, what has brought police departments around the country to focus, perhaps even overly so, on how things look. We, we've done this to ourselves, right? I get that optics are important. I get that this is our iconic building for democracy. The Capitol building is the symbol around the world of democracy, and you don't want it ringed with military troops and guys in riot gear. I get that, but we've evolved or devolved to this because of a summer of riots around the country where now everybody is saying this was overbearing. This was riot police. We can't have this on our streets. And so it's, it's, you cannot win at this point. But look at the optics now. The world, the Kremlin, Beijing, Tehran, North Korea, all our allies, all looking at the optics now of National Guardsmen sleeping inside the Capitol, trying to prevent the Capitol from coming down during the inauguration. The optics couldn't be worse. 
He is Frank Figliuzzi, former head of FBI counterintelligence, author of the book, The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. Frank, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. I'm glad we could do it. Thank you. That's just how I feel. That's just how I feel. That's just how I feel. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to uh, pick up uh, flying off the conversations we had with, both with John Nolte from Breitbart as well as Frank Figliuzzi uh, from the FBI. Um, let's start with Figliuzzi. I want to get to some of the over-the-top things that were said by members of the House Democrat Socialist Caucus. But before we do that, picking up on what Figliuzzi said about what they don't know, the question about agent provocateurs, he said, look, I'm keeping uh, those – I'm keeping my options open in terms of understanding what happened because there's more questions than we have answers at this point, which made what Kevin McCarthy had to say during, at least in part, his time during impeachment debate all the more curious. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. These facts require immediate action by President Trump. Accept his share of responsibility. Quell the brewing unrest, and ensure President-elect Biden is able to successfully begin his term. And uh, that was the part of the thrust of the video message the president released yesterday. Also, I understand the backstory was McCarthy's trying to negotiate a censure of President Trump rather than this impeachment. Uh, that obviously didn't go anywhere. Um, and this is in part, as was our discussion with, uh, as per our discussion with John Nolte, this is in part uh, McCarthy and McConnell in their different ways trying to sort of achieve the same tightrope walking uh, of accepting responsibility, putting this behind the Republican Party, trying to uh, tame President Trump, trying to look prospectively with an eye towards what the brand is going to be post-Trump and, and uh, how they reconstitute themselves with an eye towards 2022. I understand all that. But the other thing McCarthy said is for Republicans to stop suggesting conservatives to stop suggesting that Antifa had anything to do with the riot that took place on January 6th. And, and frankly, that opinion runs counter to what you just heard from the former head of counterintel for the FBI. I, I understand what McCarthy's trying to do, but why wouldn't you just take a position of we're going to go wherever the evidence leads because anybody who is responsible for committing an act of violence, whether it was spontaneous or planning, plotting, and uh, inflaming acts of violence in, in advance of January 6th, they'll be held accountable too. So we have more questions than answers. The FBI is investigating. There's increasing evidence per the reporting that there was at least some planning associated with that attack, which, of course, runs counter to the – it was Trump's speech. Trump incited this riot uh, per uh, Jake Tapper's denigration of – that uh, Florida congressman that we talked about with Nolte. So why, why, why not just leave it there and say, you know, we should go wherever the facts lead rather than dismissing out of hand something that uh, is not to be dismissed yet, according to law enforcement. And also this sort of video that was circulating online yesterday showing 
some organizing going on inside the Capitol, people milling about, and uh, they seem to have information about how the Capitol's laid out. And then you have a, a woman with a bullhorn yelling through the bullhorn into the room instructions to those that were milling about in the room with Trump garb on and so forth. We need to push forward! Hey guys, I've been in the other room. Listen to me. In the other room on the other side of this door, right here where these beers standing, there is a glass that if somebody, if it's broken, you can drop down into a room underneath it. There's also two doors in the other room. One in the rear and one to the right when you go in. So... Should probably coordinate together if you're going to take this building. So, however ill-conceived this uh, attack was, at least by some that were present, there does seem to be some planning that was going on. Now, who are these people? Are they Trump supporters? Are they agent provocateurs? Some combination of the two? I, I don't know. But this is why we have law enforcement agencies to investigate and get answers to those questions and hold the people responsible for uh, the law-breaking accountable under the law. And that's where Kevin McCarthy and House and Senate Republicans should be as well. The rule of law consistently, whether it is rioting and looting and violence at the hands of BLM, Antifa, randomly organized by Trump supporters, not Trump supporters, on January 6th at the Capitol. There's one standard, and the only way that you equally apply that standard is if you gather all the facts and measure twice and cut once, rather than pronouncing conclusions that aren't supported by the evidence for political expediency's purpose. We'll be back with more right after this, including some of those comments I mentioned by some of the uh, rabble in the House Democrat Socialist the more you'll know this is this is the Dan Proft show Welcome back to the show. Uh, turning now to some of the uh, arguments, and I use that term loosely, that were made by members of the House Democrat Socialist Caucus in support of impeachment yesterday. Uh, you probably heard some of them. You may not have heard all of them. I watched for about uh, 30 minutes uh, and uh, then tweeted out this in summation for those who didn't watch, didn't want to watch. You don't really need to watch. I could save, could have saved several hours of your life uh, by just boiling it down the way I did. In the event you've heard it uh, enough congressional speechifying filled with empty sentiment to last you 100 lifetimes, the House, House impeachment debate boiled down to this. Trump's accomplishments versus Trump's character argued by men and women of little accomplishment and wanting character. There you go. And um, I've got a lot of evidence to support my conclusion since we were just talking about evidentiary basis for uh, making conclusions. Uh, and I, I tell you, when everything is so anticlimactic, 
including the speeches really from both sides, you really have to come over the top with crazy and recklessness in order to get noticed. And there's some who did. Let me give you a couple of examples. Remember, this is against the backdrop of a administration and a party that is endlessly carrying on about healing and reconciliation. Cori Bush, she is a newly minted member of the Socialist Spice Girls, also known as the Squad. She is a freshman Democrat from Missouri who defeated William Lacey Clay uh, in a primary and then won that uh, Missouri congressional seat. Here was her argument. Madam Speaker, St. Louis and I rise in support of the article of impeachment against Donald J. Trump. If we fail to remove a white supremacist president who incited a white supremacist insurrection, it's communities like Missouri's first district that suffer the most. The 117th Congress must understand that we have a mandate to legislate in defense of black lives. The first step in that process is to root out white supremacy, starting with impeaching the white supremacist in chief. Thank you, and I yield back. Um, She and uh, AOC are going to get along famously, aren't they? Of course, um, I think she was outdone. As impressive as that was, and, uh, you know, this is really not uh, that we we should just parody this. We should be um, facetious in covering this because these are not serious people offering anything serious. So we might as well have a little fun with it. We could use a little bit of fun in these times. Uh, but again, I think she was outdone by Congressman Adriano Espala. I think he's making his first appearance on the Dan Prof Show. Congratulations. He's a Democrat from New York. Uh, here's what he had to say. See if you don't agree with me. This is uh, uh, better on the crazy scale than what Cory Bush offered. He is unfit to haul office. He summons and dispatches mob to kidnap and hurt many of us. He is unfit to haul office. He summons and dispatches mob to assassinate Vice President Pence, to assassinate Speaker Pelosi. He is unfit to haul office. He summons and dispatches a mob that waved the racist Confederate flag and assaulted this Capitol, resulting in the death of five Americans, including two Capitol police officers. He is unfit the to haul office. Oh, no, give him more time. Boy, that's uh, really reading between the lines by uh, Congressman Espelade, isn't it? Uh, here's what Trump said that uh, Democrats point to, January 6th, the speech. We're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down anyone you want, but I think right there we're going to walk down to the Capitol, and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. We're probably not going to be cheering as much for some of them because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength. You have to be strong. We have to come to demand that Congress do the right thing and only count the electors who have been lawfully slated, lawfully slated. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Clear as as the sunlight that what President Trump was saying is um, squads of assassin that I I have summoned to the ellipse – Uh, Now we are going to go to the Capitol and you are going to assassinate Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi and members of Congress. (laughs) The quality of the debate that happened yesterday. Oh, by the way, this same Congressman Espala back in the fall amid the rioting going on in America's cities. 
and that yes, without no justice, there will be no peace. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of no justice, no peace, barring a, a turn from no justice, no peace, Maxine Waters, that's obviously her calling card, thus she's earned that nickname. Here is what uh, Maxine Waters had to say on that day yesterday. I want you to know we should be concerned that the Republicans will not defend him and he is capable of starting a civil war. He must be impeached. He must be stopped now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's capable of starting a civil war. He must be impeached. He must be stopped. This is the same No Justice, No Peace Maxine Waters you may remember from such instant classics as this one from June of 2018. And if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd. And you push back on them. You get out. You see anybody from the Trump administration, you get out, you create a crowd, and you push back on them. Is that incitement to mob violence? I mean, it's not. I mean, not under federal law. I'm not suggesting it. But that sentiment is my point. Compared uh, and contrasted with the rhetoric of one President Trump on January 6th. And again, I've been critical of how he responded once things began to unravel on that day. But uh, impeachable, seditious incitement to riot. The, the those individuals you just heard moralizing about the president's rhetoric and we're supposed to believe they have the moral high ground with respect to rhetoric with respect to law and order with respect to sanity this is Dan Proft crisscrossed in the wrong direction found myself in a conversation on my missed connection standing there in a purple dress with my eyes in the right direction find myself in a listen to the podcast of the show at danproftshow.com Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Now that we've uh, covered uh, Trump's impeachment and the House has uh, dispensed with its business on that count, we can move forward to uh, Nancy Pelosi's impeachment or at least censure, right? Did you catch how she characterized herself when it was her turn to offer her demagoguery on the topic of impeachment? I stand before you as a wife, a mother, a grandmother, a daughter. Uh... Excuse me, wife, mother, grandmother, daughter, gendered language. I was going to say Madam Speaker, but there I go again. See, this is what happens when you have poor leadership. She violates the strictures of new speak, and you get people like me doing it, right? Uh, the rules changes for the 117th Congress. No more parent-child. It's sibling. No more mother, father, son, daughter, brother, sister. No more chairman. No more seamen. Seamen? Seafarers. Himself, herself? No, no. Themselves. Now, of course, uh, technically, it's so funny, the technical defenses to 
uh, in the, the, the technical offenses of nonsense is what we're really talking about. It's um, the uh, House rules only apply to language and written documents. Uh, the do- rules do not prevent House members from using gendered language in any other communication. Well, perhaps not. There's no prohibition in using them verbally, but I mean, just in terms of best practices, if that's the language we should use in legislative form to codify legislation, document form, then I mean, uh, just to lead by example, to be accountable, since that was one of the watchwords of the day yesterday, you would think that uh, Nancy Pelosi would want to reflect that same spirit in the words she chooses to speak, wouldn't you? Lest we forget, you're talking about a cadre of Jacobins who believe that words that run afoul of newspeak, as they've so outlined the lexicon, constitute violence. So the prospect of incitement, the prospect of words as violence, this is the campus culture come writ large to America, combined with accountability, the leadership by example, where we look to uh, the august Speaker of the House for instruction on how we're to communicate. You know, there seems to be that uh, there needs to be some reckoning here. Nancy Pelosi needs to be offenses that non-binary individuals and their non-binary guardians, minders, could feel because of this failure by the House Speaker. You know, I just want to make sure we hold them to who they say they are, even if they've only been that way for five minutes, like Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> like octogenarian Nancy Pelosi, who can't refer to herself as a grandmother, mother, daughter anymore. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com and uh, on social media, as long as uh, Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg will have me at Dan Proft. Uh, mentioned this the other day in the context of the purge by corporate America. What does free to choose really mean? I'm as much of a Milton Friedman fan as I am. What does that really mean if we freely choose subjugation? We freely chose to make ourselves products to all of the big tech companies. And so we freely chose to help create a community where then we're subjected to being silenced by the community we've chosen. Is that freedom? So sort of the same thing. What is uh, practical freedom? To borrow a phrase from Anthony Esselin. What does it mean when we're not doing things, not because they're prohibited by law, but we're because we're choosing to 
engage in behavior that deadens the soul? Well, to help us uh, understand the answers, the implications of those questions, perhaps, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Anthony Esselin. He's a professor and writer in residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts, author of The Hundredfold, Songs for the Lord, as well as Sex in the Unreal City, The Demolition of the Western Mind. Tony, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be back here. Uh, good to have you. Um, practical freedom. You uh, sort of developed this uh, idea by using uh, uh, the autobiography of the uh, former head of animation for Warner Brothers, the guy who drew the Daffy Duck cartoons and whatnot. Um, so what what is practical freedom? Uh, well, I think it's a it's an idea I've got to develop more and more in in coming articles. Um, it's it's been on my mind for some time. Uh, when um, I I think of it as uh, my mathematical mind, that part of my mind thinks of it as the denominator um, in a, in a ratio. That is, look, if we all we can all keep the numerator down. Uh, let's say the numerator is the number of uh, violent crimes committed, right? Um, we can keep that down by uh, all, you know, walling ourselves up behind uh, gates and um, alarm systems and uh, refusing to, you know, take ordinary walks in the woods and things like that. We, we can basically uh, commit ourselves to living in padded cells and, and keep that... The, that number of uh, that number of crimes down, but at the cost of doing very few of the things that ordinary people used to do commonly without any uh, without any fear, um, in fact without thinking about it twice, uh, and uh, so, so we end up with um, we end up with a ratio that doesn't really tell us that much, right? So you say, well, you know, there were a certain number of violent crimes last year committed in a country of uh, a certain uh, population, but it's not telling us what those people are doing, um, how, how much they have or have not uh, curtailed their own lives um, for good or for bad reasons. Uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't tell us much. To, to tell, tell us more, we need we need a fuller description of how people live, what they actually do. Um, you know, if if uh, if it's not considered safe for your uh, 12-year-old kid to uh, have the run of the town on a bicycle, then uh, I don't want to hear, in the first instance, I don't want to hear about the crime rates. I want to hear about how you guys have decided to live that makes such an ordinary thing unthinkable to you. Yeah, it's, uh, it, right. So th th this is the idea. The, the lament right now is about lockdowns and our kids can't play sports and our kids can't do this and our kids can't do that, which is a legitimate grievance. I'm not discounting that. But then there's also this other aspect of what's happening, which is to say you can still go outside at most places. And frankly, any place that you can't, you should perhaps you know risk it. Um, but you see kids, or and, and perhaps in combination with their parents, choosing not to do so. So there's what's being imposed by the state, and there's what's being self-imposed. Right, and uh, uh, it's a, it's it's a, it's a startling phenomenon. When when I uh, um, I, I have a, a hobby, 
I've mentioned it many times in my writings. I collect old magazines, not from the 60s and the 70s. I mean from the 1880s and the 1870s, right? Um, I collect them in bound volumes, and the, the, one, of the beauty of, one of the beauties of collecting these things is that you find out a lot about how people lived by the way, right? That is, they're not, they're not writing an article to tell you about how they live. You, you, you merely pick up uh, notions about it from what they don't consider to be uh, uh, really worthy of comment, the, the kinds of things they take for granted that ordinary people do. Um, the, the, the things that they let slip, so to speak. And um, I just, for instance, read um, read a piece by uh, the social reformer. In fact, he was called a muckraker, Jacob Rees, who was, wrote, wrote about miserable city tenements and factories and so forth. But he was describing what winter is like in Manhattan um, and other parts of New York City. And uh, the, the description of uh, uh, what people did after a big snowstorm is absolutely amazing. Um, evidently, evidently, kids and grown-ups um, would often spend the entire night outdoors, uh, sledding uh, um, or, or tobogganing down hills or having snowball fights, uh, you know, so that, so that the sun would rise upon um, their enjoyment. I mean, it, 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 he, he almost—he doesn't make a point of saying that. He—he—it's he, uh, it just—it's just sort of there, by the way, and we, that's inconceivable to us now. Well, not, it's not, something. Yeah, it's something else. So in the, in this piece that uh, you wrote uh, about uh, Chuck Jones, uh, as I mentioned at the outset, the head, former head of animation for Warner Brothers, who uh, created all these cartoon characters. Uh, you write when he was a boy, and and this is just from reading his autobiography. Like you're 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 gleaning this from reading the story of his life. When he was a boy, Chuck Jones did things. He grew up among others who did things, most of which would be prohibited now for being too dangerous. He also read books, not because he was bookish, but because he had a free spirit. That's such an interesting observation about what Chuck Jones is telling you through his autobiography. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know. And by the way, uh, I, I mentioned here that I got flack. From a woman, a commenter, uh, who um, uh, this is actually kind of disgusting. You can't defend the boys now in print without uh, having somebody uh, say "uh huh" and basically uh, insinuating that you're um, you're somebody sick. Okay? Oh, oh my geez. gosh! Uh, yeah, it's just disgusting. Um, boys especially need defense in these days. Nobody, uh, nobody's standing up for them. Um, I think of them as you would think of a border collie or something like that. They need acreage. <laughs> they, they need acreage. You can't you can't pan up a border collie in an apartment without the collie going crazy. Okay, um, and uh, you know we or, or worse or, or or becoming destructive, including self destructive, as we're seeing. Yeah, that's right. And and so uh, anyway, uh, what what was amazing to me picking up these these just these hints along the way is that uh, he had a real he had a real kid life he had a real boy life the interesting thing is that the more you let boys be boys um, the more freedom the girls get too okay because the area is cleared out for them right I mean give the boys more acreage the girls will get more too um, uh, if you try to make the boys into girls then everybody suffers right uh, I mean the kid the kid uh, um, the kid left school at age 15. 
he's a high school, high school dropout. Um, he, he went to an art school. Uh, he didn't learn to be a great artist, but, uh, you know, he went there for a couple of years. He, he uh, got work as a janitor, and then he ended up uh, getting work as, you know, a 19-year-old in uh, Warner Brothers, in one of the studios, in one of the animation studios. Uh, you know, this, it, 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 and the story is told there not as if to say, hey, you know, even though I was a dropout, not that at all. I, you know, I was sick of school. I had, I wasn't going to learn anything there, so I dropped out, went to art school. It's the kind of thing that a lot of people would do, and you wouldn't think twice about it. Anthony Esselin, professor and writer in residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts, author of The Hundredfold, Songs for the Lord, and Sex in the Unreal City, The Demolition of the Western Mind. Tony, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Sam. Anytime, please. Thank you. Thank you. Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I uh, want to talk more about um, and understand more about vaccines, particularly the mRNA vaccines. We talked to Alex Berenson last week. He is not alone in suggesting that, you know, he is under 50 years old. He doesn't feel any real urgency about getting the vaccine, uh, number one. Number two, he said his school-aged children will not be taking the vaccine because there's just not enough evidence, experience, knowledge about mRNA vaccines compared to the relatively infinitesimal risk that uh, his children would get sick from COVID, we get infected and we get sick. And it's interesting because there's there's just more scientific development in this area. News out yesterday that a potential vaccine for multiple sclerosis is now within sight. And I don't want to overstate it. I'm just reporting. This is way beyond my expertise. Potential vaccine for multiple sclerosis. This was reported in Science Magazine. It was tweeted out by an epidemiologist we spoke with the other week, Eric Feigl-Ding. It's an mRNA vaccine by BioNTech, the maker of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Study in mice shows great promise for improving symptoms and stopping MS progression. So, you know, just this whole sort of topic area of vaccines, not limited to COVID, but including COVID and whether this mRNA category of vaccine development in COVID and perhaps to treat other maladies shows uh, the sort of promise that uh, many are suggesting. Well, let's talk to an expert since we aren't experts. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend, Dr. Roger Klein, who is an expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic and former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, HHS. Dr. Klein, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, hi. So um, talk to us about mRNA vaccines. Respond to the concerns raised by Alex Berenson and others saying there's just not enough of a track record with these vaccines for me to feel comfortable. Yeah, so first of all, mRNA is a newer technology for delivering basically the vehicle for producing the proteins that are central or core to the vaccine in, in creating immune response within your body. Basically, we've essentially given parts of a virus and then that person can develop immunity to those parts without getting infected. And we've done this historically in the earliest forms by taking attenuated or less strong versions of active viruses. 
and, and that's how we had to do it at first when we couldn't manipulate the, the proteins at, you know, at the molecular level. It appears to be significant in terms of increasing the flexibility for creating vaccines and then reducing the time uh, it takes for development, bringing them to market, et cetera. So very exciting. Also, you didn't mention cancer, which is another area in, in which uh, vaccines are gaining and increasing importance. I promise. Now, with, that, with respect to health experiences, I first of all, these vaccines are not authorized for children. Right. In my view, I don't see at this point a reason to vaccinate children. It's not because they're mRNA, but these kids really don't get sick. I can tell you my whole family just had it. And my daughter had it for a day. You know, she really didn't have much of anything significant. And, you know, she was in the, in the hospital a couple of years ago when she was 12. For, uh, or she was in the hospital. She was at home for uh, 17 or 19 days with the flu B. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really think that it's uh, essential. But you understand uh, where you know, politicians, including those that run school districts, are. I mean, we had this announcement from the superintendent of the L.A. Unified School District this week that when they get around to having vaccines for children, it will be required in order to attend public school in L.A. That's going to take a while, but I think they'll need to have full approvals in clinical trials. Look, in my view, we need to vaccinate 16 above, 65 and above, and prevent the serious illnesses and deaths. And then, you know, look like the Alex Berenson under 50. I, under 40, you know, it's hit or miss. I mean, I think I don't think it's, it's going to do harm it, it, for the vast majority of people. It'll be uncomfortable. Uh, you might not feel well for a couple of days. And, you know, some people do get, get sick, seriously ill under, under 40 years old. I think, you know, 40 to 60, you see more of it. Uh, Dr. Klein, what do you make of states like Arizona and Oregon moving to vaccinate teachers first instead of those over the age of 65? What we need to do is vaccinate the older and vulnerable people. And and initially what CDC did was they recommended this sort of large amorphous category of essential workers ahead of older people. And, you know, they, they did it for, believe it or not, for social justice reasons. So, you know, you're talking about vaccinating potentially some, you know, 25-year-old ahead of his 70-year-old grandmother. It doesn't make any sense. And, you know, the guidelines and, and the recommendations have now changed. I think we need to focus on reducing deaths and serious illnesses. We're never going to escape illnesses. This We won't escape infections. This may be with us permanently as a part of our natural flora. As soon as we build up, or not natural flora, but natural repertoire of viral infections. And as we build up immunity to it, as we see it, it's not going to be different than other types of upper or, or other types of respiratory infections that we get. I don't, for most people, the risk is extremely low. I, you know, I, it's run through my building as elderly people, you know, and look, a 94 year old woman dies from it. It's very serious. If you're, if you're old, it can take a big toll out of you. And I think, you know, I think we, we need to treat it seriously and carefully. When, once we vaccinate uh, these folks, this is over as a public health crisis. Yeah, as a public yeah, health crisis, maybe not as a political it, 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 crisis. It is over. Once people stop dying from it, and once, you know, we don't see these numbers of deaths and the hospitalizations plummet, we, this, this is done. I mean, I, I, it's not done as an illness. It's going to be with us. People are going to get sick. And it's not pleasant. I wouldn't go out looking for it. You know, in my view, it, you know, it's still not outside the realm of what we see with other respiratory infections like influenza. And I think, you know, I, and, and this is very much age-related. Uh, what, the new data out from the CDC this week uh, as it pertains to asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic individuals, 25% of the cases asymptomatic, they say 34% pre-symptomatic. What do those numbers, so 60% of people 
uh, don't know they have it is essentially what the CDC is saying. Uh, so what does that say to everything that we've done and, and in some places continue to do with respect to the uh, testing and tracing mantra as well as lockdowns? Look, I, th- I think if, if you have family members at risk, that sort of thing, it's, you know, it's very important to understand that you have it, you can spread it. But uh, it, what it suggests is that there's very little we can do about it. It's, it's extremely contagious. We're getting new variants that are even more contagious. I personally was locked in my residence for nine months. I kind of, I, I, I do a lot of work uh, remotely. I, I would mostly go out to go to the grocery store. When I went out of my residence into a public place, everybody's always wearing these, quote, face coverings. I wore an N95 mask. I have no clue how I got it, perhaps for my wife. She always covered her face everywhere. I, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't think that there's a lot that we can do to, uh, to, to, to eliminate this. I, I've never, I've never believed that. And, uh, and so I, you know, yeah. I think, I, I think it's the most important thing is to try your best with hygiene measures. Look, if you want to wear face coverings, it's fine. I'm skeptical that they do much. You know, half much of the country's under orders to do that, and it still seems to be spreading rampantly. But, but anyway, I, you know, I, there isn't that much we can we can do. That. What, what's really important is, is that the risk for most people is very low. And, oh. and, I, and it's not that you won't get infected. It's just the risk of a serious infection. It's age-related, but it's, but it's very low. And, and, you know, the fear of it, you know, when you get it, the fear of it, I think, is, is in some respects, you know, it really compounds the, the disease significantly. He is Dr. Roger Klein, expert with the Regulatory Transfer Projects, FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic and former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. Dr. Klein, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Is it any wonder? Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Among uh, other pronouncements that are were noteworthy from the House impeachment debate, we spoke a little bit about last hour. Some of the unhinged race identity politics, the over-the-top charges of Trump summoning henchmen to assassinate the vice president and the speaker. I mean, these are what congressional Democrats said, House Democrats said. Steny Hoyer came up with a uh, novel expression of the MAGA acronym. They had the hats on of the army of MAGA, which I refer to as Make America Grieve Again. We grieved at Fort Sumter. We grieved on December 7th, 1941, and we grieved on 9-11. And yes, we grieved on December, excuse me, January 6th of this year. Make America grieve again. Ken Masugi, writing over at American Greatness, amgreatness.com, writes, judging by the gifts they bore, some in the January 6th mob may have intended to assassinate or kidnap the vice president. These criminals should be taken literally and prosecuted accordingly. But it's far more difficult to take seriously the mob as an expression and extension of Donald Trump. For a further explanation of that observation, pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Ken Masugi, Senior Fellow at the Claremont Institute. Ken, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, it's always great to talk with you. With respect to uh, you know all those uh, members of the mob, those people who committed violence, 
You heard, obviously, the statement from House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer and so many more statements from so many more House Democrats and a few House Republicans, too, that the proximate cause of what you saw was Donald Trump, Donald Trump's speechifying, Donald Trump's failure to properly admonish the mob to not commit acts of violence, to leave the Capitol, to go home and do so quickly enough. But you say that you can't look at what happened as an extension of Trump. Explain. Well, I would take the Democrats grieving more seriously had they openly grieved more for all the destruction of the summer riots, which they weren't particularly eager to condemn in any forceful manner. I can't imagine the Capitol Hill riot having occurred without months and months of non-response to the riots that occurred in uh, many of the great cities and that are really still going on now, occupied zones and so on. Well, how do you react to Hoyer's comparison of January 6th to 9-11 and Pearl Harbor? Those, of course, are attacks by foreigners who were determined to destroy America, to at least symbolically uh, hit our commercial and political centers. What the Trump mob was supposedly protesting, and I think uh, most of the troublemakers were there simply to make trouble. I mean, they they had no particular commitment to Trump other than uh, using him as an excuse to inflict mayhem. A very small percentage of that mob. And moreover, I think there are some legitimate questions to be raised about the election. I blame uh, the Trump people for a lot of the troubles. I think the campaign was very badly run, for example. But I think some of the charges really are worth going into. Something else, that something you just said that I just want to uh, p- pick up on, the idea that, uh, that uh, individuals uh, were planning this, and, and, you know, and, and that needs some consideration, but other individuals are just looking for a reason to engage in violence. And, and this is something that we've said previously uh, with the, the riots in the cities over the summer into the fall last year. Some people are there to legitimately protest. They have a particular perspective on race relations in America or policing in America. Okay, fine. And then there are others that are just using anything they can attach themselves to as a predicate to loot stores and, and otherwise engage in violence. It's interesting that there was an understanding that that was the case with respect to those riots in the summer, there's no understanding that that could be the case with respect to what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, despite the fact that you had tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe, that were completely peaceful, attended the rally, then dispersed, went back to their hotels, went back home. Right. I think just as smart thing to do in looking at uh, President Trump is not to take him literally, but to take him seriously. I think in the case of the mob actions, you have to take them both literally and seriously. Right. That is, there was a, 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 perhaps even assassination attempts. Um, and I, I think the president delayed too long in, uh, in taking action, at least speaking out uh, and denouncing those extreme actions. Uh, I think the impeachment charges uh, go are, are way too overbroad, and uh, that would subject any president or any official who made a a speech calling for action and to fight, and then someone unfortunately takes it too literally, that might be enough to get a person impeached. I think that's far too broad. 
When we come back with uh, Ken Masugi, I want to uh, pick up there. Andy Briggs, uh, congressman from Arizona, said something about the implications of this impeachment overreach. And he shares your view. And I wanted to get uh, your reaction to his assessment. More with Ken Masugi, senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And Andy Briggs, a Republican congressman from Arizona, offered an interesting observation of the implication of the impeachment and uh, the implication of any Senate trial and conviction of President Trump. And this is instructive, perhaps, for House Republicans who support the impeachment, Senate Republicans who may support conviction as well, if there ever is a trial. Do you really think you're accomplishing what you think you're accomplishing by voting to impeach President Trump, by voting to convict President Trump. Take a listen to Representative Briggs. The craving to crush President Trump has never been satisfied, not through investigations, not through false allegations, and not even through an impeachment that was wholly without merit. And the timing of this impeachment makes little sense. Your candidate, your candidate will take office in a few hours, and President Trump will relinquish the levers of power to President-elect Biden. But your craving was never a Biden victory, nor was it even a Trump defeat. You believe that your hunger will be finally satiated by impeaching this president without completion of his full term of office. You don't merely seek victory, but you seek obliteration of your nemesis. The thirst for Trump's destruction will not be slaked, however, even if you're successful today and were the Senate to convict President Trump. Yours will be a Pyrrhic victory, for instead of stopping the Trump train, his movement will grow stronger, for you will have made him a martyr. You will have made him a martyr. For reaction to that, we're rejoined by Ken Masugi, who's got my a favorite uh, Twitter handle of mine, Japanese America, which is a tribute to the great uh, American philosopher, academic Harry Jaffa, clearly. He's a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. Uh, Ken, what about that? What about the uh, rush to impeach and perhaps, as you were describing before the break, it being overly broad, the article of impeachment, not really consistent with federal law, even though there's an appeal to federal law implicit in the article, that all you're going to do is politically martyr President Trump and further divide the nation and further engender loyalty among the millions of Americans who supported him for re-election and continue to do so. Right. It also obscures perfectly legitimate arguments and questions about the integrity of the election. And unfortunately, uh, the Republicans backed away from fleshing out those charges as a result of the mob's actions. So hopefully they'll get uh, the, the uh, accusations, and uh, a few of them, I think, only are, are worth taking up. But they're serious enough, I think, to, to merit full discussion. Now, obviously, political speech ought to be protected in a very aggressive manner. Uh, and unfortunately, the way the First Amendment gets read by lawyers it becomes an excuse for any sort of expression from uh, nude dancing to um, just calls to violence can get protected by, by the First Amendment. And so, uh, but we need to realize that officials have a higher level of standard to be judged on. So I think that standard would apply to the president. And uh, I think he could have responded much more quickly than he did. But 
consider, too, that this second impeachment is the second in a very partisan and political series of impeachments. And I think the Congress really did disgrace itself by the manner in which uh, they used their impeachment powers. Yeah, and the sequels are never as good as the uh, originals, uh, as we know from uh, the screen as well. I wanted to get you to weigh in on this uh, since you wrote about it in, in amgreatness.com. This is sort of a, an esoteric thing. It's a bit off topic, but maybe it isn't so off topic. And this was a presidential proclamation that uh, President Trump issued uh, on at the end of last year on the occasion of the 850th anniversary of the martyrdom of Thomas Beckett, St. Thomas Beckett at the hands of King Henry II. You uh, wrote about it because you thought it was particularly important and instructive, not just so that people understand the example of St. Thomas Beckett, but it, it, it spoke to something more about um, a liberty and a free society in 2020 and 2021 America. Yes, and I think it is an important presidential proclamation, which are normally restricted to American episodes and this, of course, took place in medieval England 850 years ago. Uh, but to some extent, uh, America is a result of uh, the English political and uh, uh, cultural tradition, a uh, great extent. Uh, but uh, in our revolution, uh, we transformed that result uh, from, uh, say, having an established church to having religious liberty, uh, but that makes religion all the more important. Religious liberty doesn't mean we reject religion. It means we have a different way of appreciating the meaning of religion in human life than uh, having a, an established church. So it's that ideal of religious liberty that we see affirmed in the martyrdom of Thomas Beckett against Henry II. That is that political life, American political life in particular, takes its meaning from what is above political life. That is, yeah, uh, it, it's 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 really it's just another one of these sort of paradoxes of the of the, the Trump's presidency of of Trump the man. Really, on the one hand, he's not a particularly a pro-life person, or at least he hadn't been until he was president. It was an important issue to him. In fact, he was on the other side of the issue uh, not so long ago. And uh, you know, there's no particular uh, faith tradition that he closely adheres to, according, you know, by all indications. And yet, when it came to upholding the sanctity of human life, uh, when it came to protecting religious liberty, he was always on offense on those issues. Uh, I mean, he, I, I've described him on the pro-life issue, and I would add the religious liberty issue, too, maybe for people of faith and people who believe in the sanctity of human life from conception to natural death. He wasn't the, he was like Batman. He wasn't the hero you wanted, but he was the hero you needed. Well, that's a good comparison. And uh, people shouldn't forget, however, that his first two years of college were spent at Fordham University, a Jesuit university that took its religious bearing seriously. I, I don't know that. Back then they did, maybe. Right, right. Back then. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that there's any direct connection there, uh, but certainly he appreciates the role of limited government. And we can have a limited government when uh, successfully, when we have citizens 
who take their religion seriously. And that's the connection here. Religious liberty and liberty in general uh, have to be in a partnership in order for American self-government to work at its best. Ken Masugi, Senior Fellow, Claremont Institute. Ken, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. danproftshow.com Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We spoke in the last hour about Nancy Pelosi and uh, non-gendered newspeak. You want to understand the state of higher education and to get a uh, salient commentary on the larger culture in one job posting? Here it is. From an advertisement at University of California, Davis, for an assistant professor of sustainable aquaculture and and coastal systems. Assistant professor of sustainable aquaculture and coastal systems. Here's the job post. As one of the country's leading R1 institutions, UC Davis seeks candidates with exceptional potential for research, teaching, and inclusive excellence. Here we go. In addition, the successful candidate will demonstrate an understanding of the barriers preventing full participation of members from historically underrepresented and marginalized student communities in higher education, such as, but not limited to, women, underrepresented minorities, individuals self-identifying as LGBTQIA+, veterans, individuals with disabilities, economically disadvantaged group, first-generation, undocumented students, or students with any intersections in between. Successful candidates will help advance UC Davis's strategic goal of improving access and building an inclusive community for all marginalized populations. Have you forgotten yet what the uh, discipline of this professor uh, position is yet? Because I have. Not done. The successful candidate will also have an accomplished track record, calibrated to career stage, of teaching, research, or service activities addressing the needs of underrepresented minorities and clearly articulated vision of how their work at UC Davis will continue to contribute to the university's mission of serving the needs of our diverse state and student population. Applicants track record of engagement and activity related to diversity, equal opportunity, and inclusion, as well as their plans for future engagement will be a significant part of the overall evaluation of the candidate's qualifications for faculty appointment. <laughs> That's the job posting for an assistant professor of sustainable aquaculture and coastal systems. I had to go back to the top to remember what the area of study even was for this professor. Because it sounds like it's uh, a assistant professor of DIE, D-I-E, diversity, inclusion, and equity. Uh, 18 words about research and teaching in that job description above. The, the, the job description that I just read from? 176 words about a candidate's commitment to diversity, inclusion, and equity for an assistant professor of sustainable aquaculture and coastal systems. Oh, by the way, uh, this comes to us from Mark Perry over at Carpe Diem blog, I should have mentioned. And he uh, has this uh, addendum. Enrollment at UC Davis, 61% female, 39% male. 
therefore, wouldn't male students be an underrepresented minority at UC Davis? Mark Perry asks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, trying to uh, impose intellectual consistency in higher education. Talk about a fool's errand, Mark. Come now. This is Dan Prop. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. So uh, Jack Dorsey, Twitter CEO, came in from the forest in which he lives to tweet out some things. Some uh, deep thoughts he uh, must have generated while um, subsisting peacefully in uh, some shire somewhere. First on Trump and banning Trump. I do not celebrate or feel pride in our having to ban real Donald Trump from Twitter, at real Donald Trump from Twitter, or how we got here. After a clear warning, we take this action. We made a decision with the best information we had based on threats to physical safety both on and off Twitter. Was this correct? In his Twitter thread, he admitted there were inconsistencies in his stance with the president, but um, banning President Trump while allowing extreme views to still be expressed on the platform by people like, oh, I don't know, Nicolas Maduro, Ayatollah Khamenei, the, you know, the dictators around the world. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, Dorsey said, I believe this was the right decision for Twitter. We faced an extraordinary and untenable circumstance forcing us to focus all of our actions on public safety. Offline harm as a result of online speech is demonstrably real and what drives our policy and enforcement above all. And uh, he said, that said, having to ban an account has real, has real and significant ramifications. While there are clear and obvious exceptions, I feel banned is a failure of ours ultimately to promote healthy conversation. No, it's on us. Yeah. That is, um, I, I guess, some sort of backdoor expression of accountability uh, to give the perception of accountability and uh, drive the conversation away from hypocrisy. Or, frankly, more importantly, as I mentioned the other day, and we'll reiterate here, the standard and the implications of the standard that Twitter is setting and that so much of corporate America is setting. Your communication on social media verbally, is to be assessed not based on the content, not based on any reasonable understanding of what you were trying to communicate, but based on how others may receive it and whether or not they feel compelled to scurry off into a safe space out of fear, right? This is about safety, safety, safety. There's no crackdown that is too severe if it is done in the name of safety. Of course, in addition to that, Dorsey also goes on to lament the power that big tech companies have. Well, I'm just as upset about it as anybody, says big tech company CEO about big tech. So you have the, the big tech company lament, la, lamenting the power possessed by big tech, right? Dorsey tweeting out, we're trying to do our part to decentralize power away from ourselves. Sure. By funding an initiative around an open, decentralized standard for social media, our goal is to be a client of that standard for the public conversation layer of the Internet. We call it At Blue Sky. 
funding an independent team of up to five open source architects, engineers, and designers to develop an open and decentralized standard for social media. This will take time to build. We're in the process of interviewing and hiring folks, looking at both starting a standard from scratch and contributing to something that already exists. No matter the ultimate direction, we will do this work completely through public transparency. Sure, it got a lot of buzzwords in there, nicely tweeted. It's the politicians, the politicians' patois. This problem I created, I'm just as upset about it as anybody, and I've got my top men on it. You know who should solve this problem? I created me. And you know how I'm going to do it on my terms. Okay. The implications of that standard, though. A good example of this is actually to be found in a Supreme Court case, a case before the Supreme Court right now. It's a First Amendment rights free speech case. Uh, and uh, the, the, the facts here is what's really relevant, sort of the issue of uh, nominal damages, uh, which is really what's at bar before the court in this case of Usbognum versus Prashevsky. It's a First Amendment case uh, stemming from a student experience at, George's, at Georgia Gwinnett College. Setting aside the, the issue at bar before the court for a minute, the, the circumstances. The case was brought by a student at Georgia Gwinnett College. And while he was attending that college, he converted to Christianity. He, uh, and, and he said, it brought, much, it brought me so much joy and purpose that I wanted to share my faith with as many people as possible. He tried to do that by having one-on-one conversations with students in, large, in a large plaza on campus where many other student groups and activists do the same. Campus police told him he had to stop and move instead to a free speech zone. I'm old enough to remember when all of America was a free speech zone, particularly a college campus, but I digress. He did, but police stopped him again, saying his speech constituted disorderly conduct, his profession of his Christian faith, disorderly conduct, which the college defined as any speech that causes students subjective discomfort. The police threatened to prosecute the student if he continued, so he stopped. Yet another uh, situation... And he and another student in a similar situation sued the school for violating their First Amendment rights and so forth. What goes on from there? But that go back to that standard. So this is the these are the silencing speech codes. Disorderly conduct, unprotected speech, culturally now, speech that causes students subjective discomfort. What was the basis of Twitter's banning of Trump? Again, the same. The content being received, how the content is being received not the uh, a reasonable review of the content, a reasonable understanding of what the communication intended to convey, but how anybody receives it, no matter how unreasonable, and it causes them discomfort. Or it's sa- that somebody says, you know, this is a call to arms, even when it isn't. But if somebody interprets it that way, then the person who communicated something very different is responsible an impossible standard to maintain free speech in a free society. And by the way, some on the left are pick up on the hypocrisy of big tech too, uh, forced creatures like Jack Dorsey, you know, for, for much different reasons, but our friend of the show, even though we have real philosophical disagreements, but uh, Jeet Hare over at uh, The Nation, he uh, writes... Those on the left who distrust the concentration of economic power um, suggest the social media crackdown on Trump is a case where arsonists are allowed to recast themselves as firefighters, arguing that Trump's entire political career was fueled by social media. 
There's something in our uh, here writes. There's something arbitrary and even cowardly about the fact these social media outlets are turning on Trump in the very twilight of his presidency. It's easy to take a heroic stance when the stakes are low. Earlier in Trump's political career, social media companies were more than happy to profit from Trump in numerous ways. He was a reliable generator of clicks. His campaign was a generous purchaser of advertiser, and his, and you know some of his policies were. Uh, beneficial to Silicon Valley billionaires, too, he goes on to say. The belated turn against Trump is purely a cynical exercise. Of course it is. Is there any other kind from big tech oligarchs and, frankly, corporate America more generally, a cynical exercise? Now, the problem, of course, with the criticism from the left is they want more silencing, not less. But at least they're not completely hoodwinked by the cynical exercises and the rank hypocrisy and the arbitrary uh, application of so-called standards by these individuals. That is worth noting. Something else, too, you want to leave room for people to come over to your side who are not necessarily natural allies. And it is worth noting there were a number of other individuals than we've reported on this show who weighed in on behalf of Trump, and even though they are not Trump fans, opposed the banning of Trump. I mean, it's sort of remarkable, too, including self-avowed socialists. How about AMLO, Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador? I don't like anybody being censored or taking away from the right to post a message on Twitter or Facebook. I don't agree with that. I don't accept that. How can you censor someone? Let's see. I, as the judge of the Holy Inquisition, will punish you because what I think you're saying is harmful. Where is the law? Where is the regulation? What are the norms? This is an issue of government. This is not an issue for private companies, meaning this is an issue for government to regulate speech that is lawful and speech that isn't. A very different standard in Mexico than the United States, but his point is well taken. Uh, Poland's prime minister Algorithms or the owners of corporate giants should not decide which views are right and which are not. There is no and can be no consent to censorship. The acting prime minister of Australia, Michael McCormick, I don't believe in this that sort of censorship. I mean, there's been a lot of people who've said and done a lot of things on Twitter previously that haven't received this sort of condemnation or indeed censorship. That's a matter for Twitter. They've made that call. They've got a company. They've got a business to run, and they've made that decision. But he doesn't agree with that, and he sees the inconsistency there. Carrie Hilson, you know, actress, singer, um, not necessarily a Trump fan, and she does well when she says, take Trump out of it for a moment. A democracy must include freedom of speech. Imagine other leaders or popular figures not being able to voice their opinion if it opposes a majority of world leaders. Our freedom of speech is being taken from us. And of course, Elon Musk also weighed in. Uh, condemning West Coast high tech for becoming the de facto arbiter of free speech. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Trump supporters were uh, maligned as credulous boomer rubes by uh, the Lincoln Project. That's a goof, Rick Wilson. But uh, in terms of the boomers, it's not the credulous rubes, 
quote-unquote, as so described, that turned out to be the problem with that generation. It's those that uh, achieved uh, significant political and cultural power, it would seem to me. And uh, this is the one of the themes from Helen Andrews' new book, Boomers, The Men and Women Who Promise Freedom, or is it freedom, and delivered disaster. Helen Andrews, senior editor of the American Conservative, uh, the book released January 12th, so pick it up. Thanks for joining us, Helen. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. So, you know, you don't want to malign everybody in America between the age of, uh, what, 56 and 74. So the particular slice of the boomer generation that turned out to deliver disaster. That's right. It's not the people who are on Capitol Hill last week. In the structure of the book, I look at individuals, people who I thought represented the boomer generation, people like Steve Jobs or Aaron Sorkin, the creator of The West Wing, Sonia Sotomayor, Al Sharpton, economist Jeffrey Sachs, and pundit Camille Paglia. I thought each of those six people really captured something about the boomer generation. Well, let's start with, uh, you think, oh, that's Steve Jobs. No, I want to start with Camille Paglia because uh, I have sort of a complicated view of her because she's a complicated person. There's a lot of what she, her scholarship that I really enjoy and her moxie that I really enjoy. But obviously there are some views that she holds that I think have been particularly destructive. So give us your uh, Camille Paglia assessment and why she's sort of an important representative of the problem. I'm with you. I love her, despite my criticisms of her. I can still remember being in college and reading her big book, Sexual Persona, and it was just electrifying. She's clearly a brilliant human being. But what I fault her for is her obsession with pop culture. More than anybody else, Camille Paglia was a representative view that pop culture is just as worthy as high culture. You know, if you're going to get a Ph.D. in English literature, you might as well study Madonna as Milton. And the problem is that that's all very well if you're Camille Paglia and you know both. You know, she's read you know every book on the planet. She's very educated. But the next generation that was raised thinking that pop culture was just as good as high culture now doesn't even know Milton or Shakespeare. So you get young academics who have their Ph.D. in Sopranos studies who just aren't as bright and well-read as Camille Paglia. Well, so so uh, develop Steve Jobs uh, as something that uh, provides more nuance to that, uh, to how uh, they, that generation delivered destruction. Well, a lot of people think that Steve Jobs' hippie persona was just an act to cover the fact that he was a real corporate shark. I disagree with that. I think that Steve Jobs really invested his business with the hippie ethos that he believed in. He wanted computers to liberate human creativity. And I admire him for his success in uh, imposing his vision of technology on the rest of America. I mean, technology looks the way it does today because of things that Steve Jobs believed. The irony and the tragedy is that Steve Jobs' hippie mission of popularizing computers in order to liberate human creativity actually ended up yielding the economy that millennials complain about, where we're stuck in Uberized jobs in the gig economy, and also led to a proliferation of addictive screens. Millennials don't feel liberated by the screens in their lives. We feel almost enslaved by them. So by putting a computer in everybody's pocket the way that he uh, always wanted to do from the beginning of his career, Steve Jobs actually, he well, 
promised freedom and delivered disaster. Is there a certain larger takeaways of how uh, individuals like the ones you profile really change the arc of the culture away from certain mores and to other mores? The unifying theme is that the boomers were institution destroyers because in the boomer book, uh, anything that's an institution constrains individual choice. Uh, And I think we're going to have to rediscover how to feel a sense of continuity with the past uh, and a sense that we are not free to just remake the world according to our own whim, that we inherit the world from our ancestors and we have a duty to pass it on to our children better than we found it. Uh, And that unlimited individual choice is not the highest value. So that's what the yeah. millennials have to do now. Yeah, so the intergenerational compact was broken by the by the boomers, at least these uh, cultural mavens that represent a certain segment of the boomer generation. That's That's a key takeaway. The other thing that you just mentioned, too, which seems so appropriate at this time, is that, you know, maximizing personal autonomy is the same thing as liberty. And it turns out it's not. This is sort of the game that Chinese communists play. If we provide you material comfort, then you don't need to live as a free person. It's a trade-off that they're imposing, and we're sort of choosing. That's right. And millennials or boomers always tell millennials, you should be happy. You know, we didn't have iPhones when we were your age, but millennials want to retort, well, yeah, but you didn't graduate with six figures of college debt. You could support a middle-class family on one income rather than both parents having to go into the workforce. So the boomers really believe that in a society full of amusement, young people should be grateful. But millennials are learning that it takes more than amusement and consumerism to have a fulfilling life. You know what's funny, too, about the 60s, uh, you know, because you think boomer and you think 60s. There's a, a good piece by John Waters, who's an Irish writer, about how the king is dead. He's talking about sort of the death of rock and roll, that uh, those, you know, rebellious rockers of the 60s uh, have been replaced by, you know, the likes of Cardi B and Justin Bieber, which is sort of another indication of the degradation of culture. But he, he reminds us that, you know, Bob Dylan, for example, was not the institutional destroyer that uh, so many institutional destroyers hold him up to be. In uh, his uh, 2004 published Chronicles, Volume 1, he nominated uh, the uh, 64 Republican U.S. presidential candidate Barry Goldwater as his favorite politician and, and debunked his own reputation as a symbol of resistance. I had a wife and children who I loved more than anything else in the world. I was trying to provide for them, keep them out of trouble. Um, he, he talks about so, you know, sort of very um, stodgy values, if you will, in terms of sort of how he's perceived and mythologized by those institution destroyers you describe. Oh, I love John Waters, and I'm so glad you brought him up because he's a boomer, but he's one of the good ones. His book, <laughs> Jiving at the Crossroads, is just brilliant. I love it to bits. And he's definitely someone who's followed an arc. He was a young rock and roll journalist, very much living the boomer lifestyle. But as he got older, he learned uh, that some of the excesses of the 60s were maybe leading society down, down a bad road. And that's what I hope to do with this book, is to help not to attack boomers, but to help more of them have that same revelation that all of the fun and liberation they had when they were young uh, is now having some serious costs 
that they're going to have to pay and that, more importantly, their kids are having to pay. Helen Andrews, senior editor of the American Conservative, author of the book, Boomers, The Men and Women Who Promise Freedom and Deliver Disaster. Helen, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the book. Thanks so much. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. This is The Dan Proft Show. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend KT McFarland. KT, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You absolutely have the best high-level show of anybody in the country. On the Salem Radio Network. Here we go. Welcome back to the show. Turning our attention back to COVID, uh, starting with vaccines. The initial... uh, advice was uh, uh, with respect to the competing vaccines that were approved uh, both in the UK and the US in close proximity to one another. The Pfizer BioNTech vaccine and the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine was, hey, take whichever one you get. They're they're essentially uh, good substitutes for one another. Well, um, there's some data now that uh, vaccines are being distributed that uh, suggests that there actually is some separation in efficacy that's worth noting. And uh, maybe you want to ask for the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine by name. This and other uh, little known facts about COVID-19 that our friend Dr. Henry Miller wrote about will be the subject of our conversation as we're pleased to be joined by Henry Miller, Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute and founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology Dr. Miller, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Be with you again, Dan. So uh, tell us what we know now about uh, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine versus the Moderna one and what uh, particularly older Americans who are prioritized now for vaccination should uh, be asking for if they have their druthers. Yeah, the um, the overall efficacy of the two vaccines, the, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, are, are excellent, about 95%. But when you break it down by age group, there appears to be a difference, uh, a significant difference. Now, the numbers are small, but, but it's fairly impressive. The, the Pfizer vaccine is uh, effective in about 95% of people, regardless of age. But the Moderna vaccine is only about 86% effective in people over 65. So, even though the numbers are fairly small, I, I would advise anyone over 65 to try to get the Pfizer vaccine if the person has a choice. That's a, important to note. Um, just on the sticking on the topic of vaccines, a, f- a study about the, of the Pfizer vaccine that was out this week suggesting that uh, the Pfizer vaccine is, uh, it seems, uh, equally effective against these new strains of COVID-19. I believe the study focused on the the mutation uh, that was identified in England. Is is that your understanding that uh, these vaccines will work against these mutations that have been identified, whether in the UK or South Africa? Yes, it is uh, so far. So it, uh, the, the antibodies that are produced 
do appear uh, to neutralize the, the new variant, the B117 variant. We, we, don't, we haven't done studies uh, that show that it actually prevents infection. We would need new clinical trials for that, but uh, the, the antibodies do seem to neutralize. Um, there, there's, um, there's one other point uh, I, I want to make. In addition to choosing the Pfizer vaccine, uh, if you have the choice, a, another choice that, that people can make is to, if they become uh, ill and symptomatic with COVID-19, um, they ought to demand the uh, antibody preparations, either of which there are two that FDA has approved for emergency use. One is from Eli Lilly, the other one is from Regeneron, and these are going begging. They're, they're very effective uh, in symptomatic patients at preventing severe disease, preventing hospitalization, and yet they're going begging for, a lot, for some bureaucratic and, and technical and logistical reasons. So that's, that's, yeah. that's quite important. Well, sure. I, I, effective therapeutic, if you're not uh, queued up for the vaccine at the moment or scheduled for vaccination at the moment, that makes sense. And, and, and you would think that that would have more profile given that that was part of the uh, regimen that was used to, uh, to, 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 to cure President Trump of his infection. Exactly. Hmm. Um, other ther- so the monoclonal antibody therapy, other therapeutics, if that's not available for somebody and they're not scheduled in the immediacy for a vaccine, is there other therapeutics we were talking about once upon a time and have, we've, sort of, we've sort of fallen off that conversation that we should revisit? Well, not really. The, uh, it, it sort of depends on what the stage of the illness is and what the manifestations are. Uh, the uh, steroid dexamethasone is good for certain situations when the uh, immune system is out of control and creating what's called cytokine storm. That's for hospitalized patients who are fairly seriously ill. Um, Remdesivir seems to have sort of fallen by the wayside given the availability of the monoclonal antibody preparations. But, um, you know, more are in the pipeline, and and we'll have to see. But vaccines are really our our great hope. All right. When we come back with Dr. Henry Miller, we're going to go through some more of these, uh, uh, what he describes as uh, little-known or under-known facts that... uh, need to be more widely known. More with Dr. Henry Miller, Pacific Research Institute, right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute and founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. We were talking about the vaccines and some other topics under the heading of COVID-19 that we need to get to. But just sticking on vaccines for a moment, uh, Dr. Miller, um, some are suggesting that once uh, we get substantial vaccination for people 65 and over, that will be... And uh, we're not there yet, but uh, there's what, but something on the order of 27 million doses deployed and about 9 million, uh, 27 million shipped and about 9 million deployed. And there's a whole separate conversation about how effective state and local governments are being uh, comparing different states to different states. But 
the idea is that once you uh, you prioritize by age, and once you get to critical mass with respect to those 65 and over having been vaccinated, that the public health crisis associated with COVID-19 would be over. Is that uh, your understanding? Is that your belief? No, that that is very far from uh, the situation, unfortunately. Uh, there, there are a couple of reasons. One is that the way that the efficacy studies were done for the vaccines was that um, in, in order to um, it, 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 efficacy was was defined as preventing uh, illness, uh, which was defined as uh, uh, being symptomatic with at least one symptom, uh, at, such as fever, losing taste or um, or smell. Uh, and, and so on, uh, and a positive uh, PCR test. That is the test that measures uh, that measures the uh, viral RNA, the genetic material, in a in a nasal swab or another test. So um, what we don't know is whether uh, the vaccines prevent asymptomatic infection that um, could could be spread to other people. That is. Uh, in these people who were who were vaccinated, the virus could be um, present and replicating in the nasal passages in the upper respiratory tract and be able to be spread. So, if if that's the case, um, the the vaccines are are not producing what we call sterilizing immunity, which would prevent the infection, even asymptomatic infection, entirely. So. Um, we, we just don't know the answer to that. The other thing is that um, in order to really suppress this pandemic and see it disappear, we would probably have to have immunity either from natural infection or from vaccines in about 80% of the population. Uh, so um, that, that's a very high bar to meet. The other thing is, as we discussed before the break, um, if, if people are if people over 65 are getting the Moderna vaccine, which has only about 84 uh, percent efficacy in in that age group, one in seven who get the vaccine won't be protected at all, and that has real implications because, for example, uh, if uh, elderly people are on a cruise ship, and one in seven think that they're protected but aren't. Uh, you're going to have uh, illness, viral uh, infections and illness circulating in that environment, which brings up the, the important point that, unfortunately, the public health precautions that we've been citing like a broken record, masking, social distancing, hand washing, avoiding crowds, are going to continue to need to be in place for the foreseeable future. Do we, do we have a sense yet of whether or not uh, the vaccines... Uh, well, not whether or not, uh, how long the vaccine protection lasts for COVID? Well, we know that um, the, the protection has lasted from the um, administration to the first patients, which was about eight months ago, uh, through the present. So the, that seems to be a fairly well-resolved question, uh, that the uh, the vaccine protection lasts for at least eight months and probably much longer. We don't know how much longer yet. Uh, with respect to, just going back to what we were talking about before the break, with respect to the mutations, 
um, you know, the, the super COVID, as uh, some of the blaring headlines suggest. Um, is this is this really super COVID? Is this it's arguably more contagious, although I don't know how much reliable study has gone into that. And and is it more virulent as well? Do we have an idea? Well, to, to bring your listeners up to speed, there are two characteristics of an infectious agent, as you, as you alluded to. One is infectiousness or transmissibility, and the other is virulence, how severe the infection, the, the illness uh, that it causes. Um, the, uh, the variants that we've seen, uh, the major variants, um, the, uh, England, the UK one, B117, and one in South Africa, appear to be more transmissible but not to cause more virulent, more severe disease. But, uh, but in a sense, that's a little misleading because incre- increased transmissibility is itself uh, very dangerous because it leads to more cases, more hospitalizations, um, more ICU utilization, which, we're, of course, we're seeing in many parts of the country now. Uh, and also, it, there's more virus around uh, to mutate. And to uh, and, and which raises the possibility of really bad mutants, which are both more transmissible and more virulent. So we need to keep the viral load in, in the that exists in the, in the world down as insofar as we can, uh, even if the um, an individual who is infected with one of these mutants is not likely uh, to to die from it. And and uh, when you talk about um... Yeah, 80% uh, natural infection or vaccination. So you're saying uh, that, uh, you know, round numbers here, uh, something on the order of 150 to, uh, I'm sorry, something on the order of maybe 200 to 250 million Americans neither have had to have it and recover or be vaccinated before we're really at the end of this public health crisis? I'm afraid so. Yeah, the number, the number is really about 260 million. Uh, every little bit helps, though. So every person who goes out and, and gets the vaccine is doing himself or herself, as well as the community, a very big favor. He is Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute, founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Dr. Miller, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thank you, Ben. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and as uh, we close it out today, I just want to go back to something that we discussed in part with uh, UC Berkeley law professor John Yu. Perhaps bears a, just a little bit more discussion given uh, where we now find ourselves with President Trump impeached for the second time and the prospect of maybe a Senate trial at some point uh, into in the early days of the Biden administration. Who knows exactly when? Who knows if it really happens? And I think, frankly, uh, the better the transition goes, the better inauguration goes, and hopefully it goes swimmingly everywhere, not just in the Capitol. The more distance you have from uh, President Trump, and into a Biden administration, I think the less appetite there will be for uh, an impeachment 
trial to try to convict the president of the United States. Plus, I think the chances will be slim that uh, you're going to see 17 Republican senators join the Democrats in, in choosing to convict. In addition to that, you, you could have a real fight on your hands. Remember, this is an open question, and there are law professors like John Yu who believe that you can hold a trial, an impeachment trial of a president after he leaves office. But there are others, noted legal scholars, Alan Dershowitz, as well as former circuit court appellate judge Michael uh, Ludig. Uh, he argues the same as Dershowitz, that you cannot impeach a president after he leaves office. Uh, he uh, strung together a Twitter thread for us on the topic. He also had an op-ed in the Washington Post. Were the House of Representatives to impeach the president before he leaves office, the Senate of the United States could not thereafter convict the former president and disqualify him from public office. The former president would no longer be incumbent in the office of the president at the time of the Senate proceeding and would therefore no longer be subject to impeachment conviction by the Senate under the Constitution's impeachment clauses. This is to say that the Senate's power under the Constitution is only to convict or not an incumbent president. The very concept of constitutional impeachment presupposes the impeachment conviction and removal from office of a president who is at the time of his impeachment in office. Thus, he's removed from office. That seems logical. The text structure and evident purposes of the Constitution's several impeachment clauses all confirm this understanding. And he cites, for example, Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution, quote, the president, vice president, all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors, unquote. Uh, I think he makes a, a strong case. I would just note that there is some precedent for a impeachment trial after the official has re- resigned his office or uh, has termed out. And but it's just something to consider that there could be a, a there very well likely would be if the Senate wanted to move forward with the trial, a legal fight about whether the Senate can do that constitutionally even before you get to potentially an actual trial. Now, that said, the posture of Nancy Pelosi and, by extension, Pagliacci Schumer is pretty clear. Anything we're doing to persecute or prosecute President Trump unites Democrats and divides Republicans, so we should take up whatever fights we can and use him as a divisive figure for as long as we can, which maybe is why Republicans shouldn't be so eager to take that bait. Stay informed and... Do so so you can stay courageous and we can stay free in this great country of the USA. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again to close out the week tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.